This morning we continue our series in the Gospel of John, and uh, we're looking at uh, John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34, the ministry of John the Baptist. If, uh, if you looked at uh, preachers and you've studied any preachers in, in history, especially the, the better known preachers, um, that are out there in history, you will see some similarities. God's call upon their life was so powerful, so amazing, that nothing would stop them despite the many obstacles that they faced. They were truly men for their age and their generation. Take uh, George Whitfield, for example. Since the Church of England did not assign him a pulpit. What he did is he started preaching in the parks and fields in England on his own. He just went out there and started uh, reaching out to the people who normally did not attend the church and then took this amazing evangelistic ministry to the colonies, to America. The Baptist uh, Billy Graham was also well he was ordained by the by the Baptist by the Baptist Church, but his ministry was much wider than simply the church. God called him to a very specific ministry and in nineteen forty seven forty seven he started his evangelistic crusades and after what happened in Los Angeles in uh, 48, 49, that ran for weeks and weeks, his ministry truly changed and impacted the world and God took him to glory just very recently. John the Baptist, in the early years of the first century, he was, I suppose by our standards today, he wasn't a young man, he was in his early 30s, but in those days he would still be considered a young man. You, wouldn't really, you weren't really considered grown up until you, you hit uh, 30. He was about six months older than Jesus. He dressed rather strangely, even for that day. He ate grasshoppers and wild honey, which would not be strange today. Most of all, he had a very powerful message which seemed to have great attraction to a lot of people. At first, the location where he was wasn't around the parks or the cities where the people hung around. He was out there in the wilderness, in the desert. And I've, I've travelled in my recent tours, I've travelled to some of those places, quite isolated. There's not a lot of water until you, you hit the, the Jordan River. And people flocked from the, from the towns to go and see him. First it was a trickle, then it became a flood of people who walked a long way to go and hear his message. A long way to hear a strange preacher. This man became so popular that even the religious establishment in Jerusalem was getting worried so they sent a delegation to go and investigate. 
This delegation was from the Sanhedrin, made up of priests and Levites that were sent because they regarded him an outsider, a maverick. He had gone to no seminary that we know of. He sat under no one's particular uh, teaching like the Apostle Paul who sat under Gamaliel. He hadn't been authorised by any particular body. He had never been ordained. He had certainly grown up in the Levitical system. His father was a priest and we know a little bit of his of how he was born and the miraculous circumstances there. But even though he he was supposed to follow in his father's footstep, he went outside of the structure of the temple and the Levitical the Levitical code, as it were. The common people were flocking to him. The establishment could no longer ignore him as he was a threat to them because they were supposed to be the ones who held all the strings when it came to what went and what didn't when it comes to religious things. So what can we learn from John the Baptist? We might even call him the John the First Baptist. First of all, he knew who he was from verses 19 to 21. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely. I'm not the Messiah, they asked him. Then who are you? Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally they said, who are you? Give us an answer so we can take it back to the people that that sent us. He wasn't, first of all, he wasn't the Messiah. The Jews who lived under Roman rule felt that God would not wait much longer to fulfil his promise to send a Messiah to rescue his people. There was a build-up, there was a steady build-up of messianic fervour, we could call it. The temperatures starting to rise. And this coming Messiah would be a great national leader from David's line who would restore the nation back to greatness as in the kingdom of David and Solomon. He would also bring national peace. He would also be a great religious leader sent from God. He would bring righteousness on the earth. With all this in the background, some therefore must have added one and one together and looked at John and said, well, this could be the one. This could be it. He could be the one. And so this delegation asked him, who are you? Who do you think? Or in the construction, in the original language, the question could also be phrased, who do you think you are? There is a almost a sneer in their words. And despite the popular rumour, John confessed that he was not the Messiah. He wasn't Elijah. So they tried again by asking him, are you Elijah? They asked this because 
the, the last verse of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant in the book of Malachi is, is a promise of the, of the coming again of Elijah. And God said in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now what was Elijah's ministry? Elijah's ministry would be of turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. What's all that all about? Well, it's, it's definitely got to do with family. It's got to do with rebuilding the homes. You cannot rebuild society unless you rebuild families and homes. I wish we could understand that. Stronger families means a stronger society. And on a day like today, being Mother's Day, that has to resonate more than ever. So it was about rebuilding the homes of a decadent nation, Malachi 4.6. If this is the case, then we definitely need a few more Elijahs in Australia, in America, in Europe. For four centuries, 400 years, there was this sense of expectation in Israel that Elijah was going to come back again. The original Elijah was this fearless, rugged prophet who called down judgment of God upon the nation. And when people heard John with his rugged countenance and his fearless message, many of them were asking, is this Elijah? And John's reply is very clear, I'm not Elijah. Why then do some passages in the Gospel treat John the Baptist as though he were Elijah? In fact, Jesus himself in one occasion said to his disciples who, who knew that he was referring to Elijah that you know, he made the connection that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to be sent. That's in Matthew chapter 17, verses 12 to 13. What did Jesus mean? when he answered and his disciples understood that he was talking about John the Baptist being Elijah. You see, the answer is given clearly in Luke chapter 1 when Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, appeared to John's father, the priest called Zechariah. And these are the words, He shall go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah, but he would go in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And here is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that before the Lord would appear, Elijah the prophet would come. And John's ministry was like that of Elijah's. He went before Jesus in the spirit and the power of Elijah but he was not Elijah. Thirdly, he wasn't the prophet, the prophet. The Jews expected all sorts of prophets to appear before the coming of the Messiah, of the Christ. But there was much 
interest in one particular the prophet that was spoken of way back by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Some thought that the prophet might be Jeremiah, but there was no certainty who it was, so they just called him the prophet. And to this question, John's reply is simply, no, no, I'm not. Notice how the interrogators, those, this delegation that went to interrogate John, they sort of went further and further back in history. And increasingly there was a bluntness to his answers. Uh, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not. Are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. But you see from Acts chapter 3, we know that the prophet was actually the Christ from Acts chapter 3 verses 21 to 22. That was what Moses, even way back in Deuteronomy, was referring to Jesus. What else can we learn about John the Baptist? He prepared the way, verses 22 to 23. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. They said to him, like, who are you then? We, we, we can't go back to Jerusalem without an answer. Give us a break. Throw us a bone, something. Their questioning, the tone of their questioning improves slightly, doesn't it? And to this John tells them to read Isaiah. And there they will find a description of him spelled out. He must have asked himself as, as he was growing up, this little boy growing up in a Levitical family, what does God want me to do with my life? Don't you think that John the Baptist would have asked himself that? Remember that John the Baptist had the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. Pretty early stage. And we're still debating where life begins, right? What does God want me to do with my life? And John had learned who he was and what he was to do by reading, by studying the prophecy of Isaiah. Undoubtedly, his parents would have told him about the miraculous circumstances of his birth. He was, mum and dad would have been pretty old by now, so I doubt that mum and dad would have taken him to soccer early on Saturdays and all of that, you know, to guitar lessons and all that type of stuff. They were pretty old. But what they could do was teach him the scriptures. And there the answers to what he was to do with his life came through. 
He knew from his childhood that he was a chosen vessel of the Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit. A highway builder, preparing a highway in the desert for the Lord. Not so much for men to get to God, that will happen, but for God to get to men. That was the preparation. For God to get to men. And Isaiah tells us how highways are built. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 4, Every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain will be made low, the rough ground shall be made level, and the rugged places a plain. If, if, you're a, if you know anything about civil engineering and how roads are constructed, you will know the marvellous work that they, and difficult work that they do in, if you've ever driven up the, uh, the Gosford, up the north, you will see the breaking of the rock, the building of the bridges, of you know, levelling the mountains and raising the valleys and all that type of stuff that goes on in construction, in road construction. The crooked ones are straightened out. The rough ones are made smooth. That is how roads are built. And this is a beautiful description of John's ministry. It describes for us the way that repentance works. Repentance in the human heart. How how God... The Holy Spirit works in the human heart. If you feel low and worthless, you're in a valley, a dark valley sometimes. Then look to God and He will lift you up. He will exalt you. Every valley shall be raised up. On the other hand, if you feel proud and self-sufficient, on top of the hill, I got it all. I'm at the top of the mountain. I don't need anybody. I got here by myself. Guess what? You need to calm down. There's a lot of that going on today. You need to come down. You need to be brought down. And God is very good at that. Every mountain and hill will be made low. This is where God will meet you. He will not meet you up there. He's very good at cutting down tall poppies. This is where God will meet you and nowhere else. Now having clarified his role, John now goes on to fulfill the major work for which he came to do and that was to identify Jesus. So build the highways, prepare the way, raise up the the low, bring down the, the high, level the ground. But his major work was yet to happen. Verses 24 to 26, he baptised. 
Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptise if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Verse 26, I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. John told the people, straighten out your life, God will meet you there. That was John's ministry all through his life. And but it was it was it was that. It was it was I suppose it was a great ministry, but it was limited to that. Because he was to baptize with water. To be willing to be cleansed of the old way. And John didn't mince his words. He was he was not he wasn't the seeker sensitive preacher. Okay? He wasn't out there wanting people to like him. If you want to go and listen to the word of God, you get out there. You walk for days and in order to, to listen to this preacher out in the wilderness. He's not going to come to you. You've got to go to him. And you're not going to hear nice things. Okay? And people still went. It's what God's spirit does. Creates a hunger. I wonder what uh, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher and teacher and theologian, American, his most often quoted sermon, I suppose. I wonder the title, whether the title will be politically correct. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. I wonder what that would sound like. Day. A sermon that goes on for two hours and people are left in tears, full of repentance because the power of God had overcome them. They knew the sinfulness in their lives. John was calling them to repent and be baptized. Baptism, you see, was normally for non-Jewish or the Gentile people who, who wished to be, become Jews. All Gentiles were considered unclean by the Jews. But the Jews felt that they were, because the Jews felt that they were already acceptable to God. No matter how they lived, they, were, they felt themselves acceptable. After all, they were the privileged children of Abraham. Unfortunately, many, many Jews today actually have the same attitude. And even as a pastor, uh, even today, when you somebody's been a Christian for a few years and you challenge them and you say, well, why aren't you baptised yet? Why haven't you followed the Lord through the waters of baptism as the scriptures command? They bring up the old, you know, oh, I was baptised as a child and all of this type of stuff and I don't want to get baptised again and all of this. And, and you can sort of sense a little pride coming in. I'm not going to get out there, get wet in front of all those people. Guess what? Yeah, you know, he's just displaying the pride coming through. Maybe God needs to bring you down a little bit. 
follow his words in obedience. I'm not making this stuff up. This is the stuff is in the Bible. Obey the word of God. What else? What else did John do? What was he like? He was humble, verses 27 to 28. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. In, in Palestine around that time, uh, there were a few rabbis and teachers hanging around and they, the teachers typically had disciples, those who followed him around the countryside. And the teachers were not paid by their students. Instead, the disciple or the student would perform certain small tasks for the teacher. But even, but even a disciple was not to untie the straps on the teacher's sandals. That task was reserved only for the servant, not the disciple. John, who at this stage already had disciples of his own, was very much aware of his own unworthiness when compared to Christ. He felt that he was not even worthy to be the servant, not just a disciple, he wasn't even worth to be the servant who unties the sandals of his master. That's how lowly he felt himself. Humility. Humility. Humility was an insult in that day to the Romans. It was an insult to the Jews. Humility was something reserved for the very lowly, the slaves and the servants and all of that. There's a lot we can say about humility. In today's age and today's generation, humility. It just bing, yeah, that, that word. I told you the story um, it, it, because it, it, every time I talk about humility, I just, I just feel stupid. Um, years ago, I was witnessing to a very good friend of mine in Paraguay He's a psychiatrist now. He wasn't, he wasn't a believer. I was about 18, 17 at the time. And um, I, I basically said to him, he, he asked me, he said, well, what's the difference between you and me? You know, and, and I just didn't know what else to say. You know? Teenager, lost for words. And I basically said, I'm humble. I should make T-shirts, you know, so I'm humble, you know. Like, I went home and he just started laughing, you know, as he should, right? I'm an idiot. So, like, don't you ever feel like that? Like, particularly when you're trying to be a, a witness and you're trying to be... Oh! If, I, if you ever pick my, my worst moments in life, that would have to be one of them, all right? 
I just had, I've got to pick up myself from here somewhere, okay? Uh, but that's it. You can't, the moment you declare it, the moment you wear a T-shirt, you put a sticker in the back of your car, you've lost it, man. That's what I'm saying. It's an art that you loses, you lose it very quickly. You know what it is. I know what it is. But the moment you spell it out, and if I have to spell it out, you, it's, it's gone. It's gone. Please, I beg you, don't be stupid like me. Alright? I'm humble. Because God has an act, because that was God's moment in my life to humble me. And even humiliate me. Because humble and humility and humiliation actually come from the same root, the same process. So when somebody says to you, even insulting you and, and, and some, something nasty and forever, and, and you're about to say, you've humiliated me, Perhaps just stop a little bit and say, maybe this is God's way of, what is it? Of, we spoke about the hill and levelling. Okay. Maybe that's God's way. It certainly was with me. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote, Romans 12, 3. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, not just some of you, every one of you, he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Great verse. So when asked, why are you baptising, John simply points out the emphasis was not to be on what he did, but on the contrast with Jesus when compared to Jesus. Straight away. That's a good way for all of us. When you think you've, you've sort of climbed the mountain and everything else, compare yourself to Jesus. Compare yourself to him. Don't compare yourself to another brother and sister. Certainly don't compare yourself to me. I'm going to disappoint you. Compare yourself to Jesus. And and John's baptism was one of repentance. Again, I say that for the forgiveness of sin. So when he said, I baptize with water, he was mainly dealing with the externals. It was a preparation that was leading, that was pointing, that was directing people to someone. It was actually leading to the process in Matthew 28 of the Great Commission. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because only the Holy Spirit can regenerate. You can get baptised in water as many times as you want, but only the Holy Spirit can regenerate can sanctify, can change you. We're going to look more, of that, more about that in uh, the episode with Nicodemus. Now all of this took place at a significant spot in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now this is not the Bethany of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, okay? It was close to 
just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. This was a place of traditionally known as the place of the passage. So when the Israelites crossed the Jordan to come and take the promised land, this was the place of, of the crossing, the passage to the promised land under, under Joshua. And it was there that John the Baptist first pointed out who Jesus was. Joshua, you see, was a type of Jesus and another name for Jesus is actually Joshua or Jeshua. He leads us, he leads his people into the promised land. And when his words, there is one standing among you whom you do not know. Can't you see them just sort of looking around, you know? Okay, no one looks like it here, honestly. No, I'm looking around everywhere. And he doesn't identify Jesus any further at this point. Now, he's the one whom the prophecies are spoken about. He is the one. He is the one. And all these people looking around, are you the one? Who is the one? He is far greater than I. He was born six months after John. He was younger than John. He came after me in time, but he was also before me in time. That that is significant, you see, because he is the one who comes after me because he was before me. He is the one. And from the very beginning of the Old Testament, there's there's this whispering hope that grows stronger and stronger and it builds up about the one who was coming. Even even starts, it starts there at Genesis chapter 3. Now John announces that there is one standing among you, the fulfilment of all our expectations, of all our prophecies. So, of course, he points to the Lamb, verses 29 to 34. He pointed to the Lamb. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other versions, behold the Lamb of God. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And in verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Verse 29 has to be, without a doubt, one of the great verses in Scripture. Look, the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the midst of the crowds, He's guided by the Holy Spirit and he points to the one for whom he has been preparing the way for all of these years. The moment has come. He is finally here. It's like the the relay runner, the, the prophet John, John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets. He is running the second last leg before he hands over the, the baton to, to Jesus. The moment is here. 
The Lamb of God, of course, points back to the Old Testament. We looked at this in Hebrews where the animal sacrifices and the bloodletting were normal events in Jerusalem. The streams of blood run throughout all of the Old Testament. But these sacrifices, you ever notice that these sacrifices, why the need for so much blood? Why the need for so much sacrifice? Of course, in Leviticus we read that in the life of the flesh is the blood. We know that. And it is clear that there will be no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. We know that. But nowhere is it explained why God demands blood. This is because every sacrifice was a testimony, was pointing that someone was coming who would supply that explanation. An answer is coming. An answer is here. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. At least there is a final, at last there is this final answer to Isaac's question. You know, Isaac there on the mountain, Father, where is the Lamb? And Abraham replied, God will provide. God will provide the Lamb. Everybody's asking, where is the Lamb? God, you have a jar. God will provide. And here, there, behold, look, there is a Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The fulfilment of all the sacrifices, the bloodletting and everything else, here is the one, here is God's chosen one. The perfect one. I know you don't want to hear this, but, uh, and I know in parenting in these day and age, this is going to sound really bad. I know. But please just take what I'm saying. Most of us are going to live fairly unremarkable lives. Okay? Does that hurt? No? George accepts it, you know. He <laughs> Don't say that. Don't say that. My son's going to be a, a remarkable human being. He's going to find the cure for cancer and, and, you know, repopulate Mars type of thing, you know. Because there used to be life in Mars, you know that, right? So we just got to get off that. Anyway, that's not there. Um, can we accept that? Like, in the way that the world, you know, puts people on different pedestals and lives and all of that, there's a different measure that we use. Most of us are just going to live fairly unremarkable lives as well as the world, as far as the world is concerned. We're not miracle workers, not noted for anything in particular, ordinary commonplace but you know what we can tell people about Jesus wherever we go we can actually point others to him and say look behold 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one. He's the one. Please, we point to him. We point to him. And please understand that some of our kids will be remarkable people. But there's got to be built built into them a sense of humility that they say that it doesn't matter what giftings and what talent and what amazing possibilities God has in your life, that I want you, it doesn't matter if you're low, if you're high and everything else, everything has to go towards Jesus. Point is him. He's the one that gives you the abilities. He's the one that gives you everything you have. In the eyes of the world, perhaps we will live unremarkable lives, but in the eyes of God, we're all amazingly, incredibly special. No one will love you like Jesus. He has a lot invested in us. Please do not compare yourself to the world, but always compare yourself to Jesus and how much he loves us. So let us be faithful in pointing others to Jesus. And then after we are gone, perhaps the epitaph on our gravestone, for those who tend to think a little bit more about what goes on the gravestone, maybe you can put this. He did no miracles, but everything he said about Jesus was true. Maybe he pointed others to Jesus. Maybe that. Maybe he loved his master. Everything that points to Jesus is, is going to be rewarded because that's what we're called to do. May God instill in us this amazing calling in our lives, just like John the Baptist, that we can live lives that are, are worthy of the salvation for which we have been called. Thank you, Lord. We're going to sing Jesus.